Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Society of Greater New York, 
made up of Rancher Book readers from New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and have been a past president and had other positions as well. Now I host a Rancher Book study group in the West Village area of Manhattan, and that's sponsored by the Rancher Society of Greater New York. Now it meets usually the first and third Sundays of each month throughout the year at 1 o'clock at the center, 208 West 13th Street. The study group is totally free of charge, of course, and certainly open to all. We read uh, a few paragraphs of the Rancher book and then stop to discuss it as we go through it. And I venture to say that those who attend, both first-time readers as well as long-time readers of the book, find it a very rewarding experience on many, many levels. Again, everyone is welcome to join us. Please let me know uh, that you're going to uh, attend, uh, and I'll give you the details of that and make sure about the dates. Now, you can contact me at my email, and I'm going to give that to you right now, which is N-I-C-K-N-Y-N-Y, the figure one, at gmail.com. Again, Nick, N-Y-N-Y-1, at gmail.com. The Urantia book has been translated into 22 languages and more to come, and it's sold at better bookstores worldwide. And you also may not only read, but listen to it on the Internet. And there's a website I'd like to give you for that. And please, when you get a moment, take a look at that amazing website. It's, it's quite chock full of all the things you need to know about the book. Uh, the website is U-R-A-N-T-I-A. B-O-O-K dot org, O-R-G. So it's your ranchabook.org. Uh, there's also another website uh, closer to home that also I would highly recommend, and that is Urantia, U-R-A-N-T-I-A dot N-Y-C. Okay, let's get right to it. Tonight, my featured guest on the program is a very dear friend and a, certainly a longtime reader of the Rancher book, Emilio Coppola, Emilio Wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate being here. Well, I've been looking forward uh, to the program with you all week, and I would like to briefly uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your background, and then we can uh, talk to you. Uh, you were born and raised a Catholic and now live in uh, in a Virginia beach uh, and um, started reading the book in April of 19. 96 and has attended study groups of several cities throughout the United States over the years. You've been a member of the Rancher Society of Greater New York since March of 2005, and you've served many roles in the society. Um, Emilio has also been a member of the New England Rancher Book Group, UAI, since December of 2007. Uh, he has been a uh, Rancher Book Fellowship Treasurer. Uh, since 2009, and also you've been the Arantia University treasurer since 2010. Uh, he's been a member of the Arantia Foundation IT uh, roundtable meetings uh, over several different years, and he's strongly motivated and certainly helps disseminate the teachings of the Arantia book. So, Emilio, that's an awful lot. You're a very, very busy guy. Wow, uh, Nick, uh, thank you, but uh, gosh, I uh, um, don't know what to say, um, but uh, yeah, I really uh, do uh, enjoy being involved with uh, the Arantia book. It, it's truly 
enriched my life. So I, I totally get that, and that's the purpose of this program is to talk a little bit more about that. And I'd like to start right at the beginning, if I may, and ask you first, uh, where were you born and raised? I was uh, born and raised in uh, New York, in Westchester County, just uh, outside of the city, and uh, grew up there, second generation, uh, Italian uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic family. Um, not, not Nothing too special one way or the other. I uh, had yeah. uh, two uh, younger brothers and two older uh, half-brothers. You know? So that's pretty big family there. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's a lot. Uh, and uh, your mom and dad, uh, you said, were spiritual, and they were they were Catholic, correct? Uh, yeah, they were uh, Catholic. I would say, you know, we kind of uh, went through the motions, so to speak, uh, not uh, overly so. My dad was certainly, I would say, at that point in his life, uh, pretty much agnostic. Um was quite angry, I think, at God for a number of the mishaps and, 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 and things that uh, misfortunes that had uh, befallen him and his family uh, early on in his life. Uh, and as I think many people uh, blame God perhaps uh, for those things or how can he allow those things to occur. So uh, he was he was uh, not too um, uh, much involved uh, spiritually. My mother was uh, somewhat, um, but uh, later on in life uh, they both became uh, very much uh, involved and uh, in charismatic Christians later on. Right. So um, also from that, I want to ask you about uh, school and uh, where you studied, that sort of thing. Could you give us a little a little brief idea about that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I guess in the Catholic tradition, I, I, I got my best schooling uh, when I was in uh, New York at uh, Fordham Prep in, in the Bronx, which is a preparatory school uh, Catholic uh, and um, uh, by Je- run by Jesuit uh, priests and um, really got a good education there. Uh, from there, I went to Iona College, which is uh, again there in New York and New Rochelle and, and again in Westchester. But uh, from there, I transferred down to the University of Georgia because I wanted something a little bit different. And uh, I figured down south was pretty different from uh, New York and uh, the metropolitan area. Uh, that's why I did. ended up graduating there with a, uh, a, a degree in finance, a minor in, in psychology. Excellent. And um, take us to the first time uh, you found the Arantia book or the Arantia book found you. What happened? Who who did that or how did you find it? <laughs> well, I'll give you the uh, quick abridged uh, story there, Nick. Okay. It's uh, kind of... Uh, I guess a little funny in a way. Um, I was um, actually working um, in in Atlanta at that time as a, a financial advisor, and, and many times in the morning I would stop uh, at a Waffle House to uh, have breakfast uh, and work. Uh, so I'd work on my laptop there. Well, one morning I happened to not get my uh, typical booth and uh, sat at the counter, and uh, next to me was a uh, an older gentleman, uh, and uh, we began to chat. Uh, he was uh, into computers and technology a little bit. And uh, in any event, uh, somewhere along the line, the conversation led to uh, him asking me if I thought we were alone here on Earth. And I said, you know, probably not. And whether or not I believe in the stories of uh, little green men coming to visit or not, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, I, I find it hard to believe, really, that uh, this vast, vast universe is uh, just 
occupied by us. So uh, in any event, he, he said, well, well, you know, after we're done here, why don't you come out to the uh, car and I'll uh, uh, add a book I want to you know, show you. So I said, okay, huh. fine. So uh, wow. uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I went out to the, uh, it wasn't actually a car. It was a dusty blue uh, van with a little round window in the back there and um, I went towards the driver's side with him, and he sort of motioned, no, no, go ahead and get in on the other side. So I'm thinking like I'm walking up there. I don't know if this is the greatest idea for me to be getting in a vehicle looking like this. Uh, but in any event, I, I did get in the, in, in the van and uh, was a little anxious about it. Uh, and he began to talk for a while, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, show me the book. At which point, uh, you know, he, he had reached behind me there and, and pulled out this big Urantia book. So if anybody's uh, seen the Urantia book, and especially the earlier editions, it is a very big book. Uh, it's over 2,100 pages. It's probably, you know, about two and a half, three inches thick and, and you know, bigger than it. <laughs> so I lumped that on my lap there, and, uh, and I opened it up, and uh, I began to read a little bit. And... Uh, I got to tell you, Nick, I was, uh, you know, before I knew it, I guess I, 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 I uh, mumbled out loud, uh, huh, you know, and he said, what? And I, I said, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, I've read a lot of different things uh, through my life and uh, I've been, you know, uh, but never have I read the English language quite this way. And what I meant by that was it was so precise. Uh, the choice of words, it just immediately struck me as, as um, you know, you might find that uh, here and there in, in great works of literature, but uh, this book read, you know, from at least where I was, uh, somewhere probably in part two or three. Uh, I don't really recall where it was, but uh, I read several paragraphs and it just flowed one to the other. And again, the, the, the choice of words um, used and the precision of the meanings was uh, just astonishing to me, uh, um, let alone the content, but uh, just, just the use of the English language really struck me. And, uh, anyway, uh, at which point he said to me, well, you know, here, take it. Uh, and I said, no, nah, I can't take it, you know. Uh, this thing's probably like 60 bucks. It's so big. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, he convinced me to take it, and I got his name and number and told him I would replace it as, as soon as I could find one. Then I'll, I'll, I'll end there, but that, that was my introduction to the Arantia book. Uh, wow, that's uh, a pretty amazing story. That really is. <laughs> Emilio, thank you for sharing that. Um, do you, I have to ask you, have, do you still, are you in any contact with him? You know, uh, no. The, answer, the short answer to that is no, um, but uh, there's a just a very uh, interesting story that surrounds that. Um, uh, and one day, perhaps, I'll uh, share that with uh, Saskia, who you may or may not know. She She's collected several uh, Urantia book readers uh, throughout the years, their, their introductions to the book. And, and I think one thing you'll find common, uh, and you probably know this too, Nick, uh, is that um, everybody's got a pretty darn unique story. Um, and many times it's, it takes, uh, you know, an introduction and almost a decade passes before they're reintroduced and where it really takes hold in that person. Um, uh, I don't know if you probably have shared your story at, at some point on the show, I would imagine. 
Well, you know, as I've been doing this podcast, and now it's been well over a year, and uh, with with readers of the Urantia book, I am uh, flabbergasted at some of the unique and uh, incredible stories of how they happen to find or the book, or I, I sometimes I say, or how the book found them, because in some cases right. it seems like that <laughs> that may be part of the truth on that. And the stories are all um, quite amazing. And uh, one thing I've learned from my own podcast is how varied uh, the people and the stories are. And then, uh, of course, their first impressions. Now, you did say already that you found it immediately. This is a gigantic, heavy, big, big book. And I felt this, I almost thought it was a law book when I saw it because it seemed like I'll never have a chance to read all of it. I've been through it now, I think, three times total in my life. But it's always a, such a rewarding experience. And one other thing you mentioned to me that rings a bell is you said the craftsmanship of the writing itself. And many, many people have commented on that. It's, it's, it's reading a, a, a incredible, beautifully written uh, a work of art, as, as well as uh, a, a book dealing with many different subjects that all are related, and the dots are connected in the book. And you have uh, spiritual, religious, uh, physics, history. It goes on and on. Astronomy. It goes on. So the book is so chock full of all of that, and so beautifully integrated. Uh, and a lot of people have mentioned that too. Um, uh, any other impressions? Did you start um, from the beginning, or did you, like I did, I skipped around the chapters of what I was most interested in to see what what the book was saying on these subjects? How did you approach it? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. And often ask that uh, to other readers. So my initial approach was totally bouncing around in it. So I didn't have uh, really any sort of support network or group. Uh, Ed himself was uh, not a reader. That was a gentleman who uh, introduced me to the book. It, it turns out, actually, it was his son who had predeceased him uh, who um, uh, died. And um, in going through his possessions, there were probably a dozen or more copies of the book found, uh, Ed said, and uh, many of them highlighted and notated and so forth. And, and those of you who do read the book uh, for, for, for us, like uh, you know, it's been about 23 years for me, uh, that, that is uh, really typical of what we end up uh, doing over time, um, is gathering up these books and uh, making notes and such uh, because it is so great. But uh, he wasn't a reader, so I didn't have a resource there. Um, and my interaction with him was limited. Um, um, because of some sort of other circumstances, but um, so I bounced around in it. I, I, I um, uh, being you know, as I said, Catholic, uh, you know, upbringing. I immediately wanted to know about the devil. I wanted to know about Adam and Eve. I wanted to know about um, you know Jesus. Um, you know, and then uh, me personally, it's science uh, that really is what uh, uh, excites me personally. And so, of course, I, I dove into those sections about, um, you know, how our universe was created, the time frames, how the earth was created, um, you know. So 
I, I, I really bounced around quite a bit um, initially, and um, I constantly had to have a dictionary at the time because it wasn't electronic um, with me just to um, look up the words because so often I thought what I thought was the word that I knew was the meaning of it turns out, you know, it was an odd way of using it and and, and, it, and then I went and looked it up and looked up the, the different definitions and lo and behold, you know, sure is enough, it, I had a very, you know, there's there's a definition that and, and why they chose that word and not another word, you know. Um, and we have so many different words in English language for a lot of similar concepts, but uh, so that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, how I read the book initially was uh, bouncing around in it. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, the verse of press edition, which I came across later on, had an index, which was very helpful, uh, a topical index. Um, you know, this is, again, all pre-computer searches and such. But uh, over time, now you get it all on your phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and it, when you were reading the the book, um, what popped out at you? What things popped out on you most? Was there any particular areas of the book that just stopped you cold? Um, oh boy, uh, I say oh boy because there's so many great areas. Well, you know, you're right. And, it, it, could say and, the whole book, <laughs> and I would totally, totally get that because yeah, sometimes there's there's sections of it that just totally speak out to you even more. And I, I was just curious. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, so let me kind of back up for you there. You know, I, I told you I read it in, in, in all over the place because I, I sort of followed my 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 passions and thinking, right? Um, so I had been searching for many, many decades before this. I was, uh, you know, trained on several different, you know, world religions. And, and from each of them, I thought there was something there, but it wasn't quite what resonated with my personal experience with God, you know. Um, and we don't have enough time to go into all that. But nonetheless, it didn't match my, my personal experience, which was more of a really loving uh Father, and maybe that might more closely approximate Jesus's interpretation of that relationship. But nonetheless, um, there were holes missing. You know, like I mean, looking at Jesus's life in the Bible or even other um, you know text, there's very little that kind of fills in these years. I mean, we know that this this was a human and, and a divine person. Um, and we we hear about his birth, and then we hear a few little incidents here and there, and then the next thing you know, he's a grown adult and he's out preaching, and 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 then before long he's he's being crucified. So um, where were all the other pieces? You know, certainly he had to be a part of a family. You know, that it would only make sense. You know, for 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 Jews of that time. Um, so you know, those sorts of pieces were missing for me. Um, you know, science just didn't make it, you know, um, you know, explanations. Um, and, of course, science constantly changes. You know, they, they put out an idea as if it's 100% fact, only to come back several decades sometimes later to say, no, it's something actually a little bit different than that. And that's what it should do, you know. So, um, gosh, you know, 
There's a lot of parts, Nick. Um, um, but I would say the part about religion, uh, chapter, you know, the papers on personal religion, your thought adjuster, um, and what that experience was like um, really resonated with me, really moved me, um, was super powerful to me. Um, uh, yeah, that, that I would say is probably if I had to pick one sort of really major part of the book. Well, I totally get that and I agree with you. And I, I couldn't help but feel this huge loving presence. And I do mean that. Uh, to say that the Urantia book is a book of love is an understatement. Um, oh. you, feel, you feel like it's got your back. You feel as though it's loving and wants you to know more and is there to mm-hmm. teach you. And um, it, it just impressed me so much. Uh, also, uh, during, during the period when I was uh, discovering the book, I was losing uh, friends to AIDS and to cancer and also to old age. And that you never get ready or you're never prepared for that ever. And then when it really hits you uh, hard, and this came into my life right when that was just nonstop happening. And it really, mm. I can't tell you what it did to bring me through a very rough, rough period of my life. And um, that's, that's another part of that book that it just does do that. And um, you feel as though you're part of a, a universal loving family. Uh, and, and that really just, just helped me so much to, uh, to get through. And um, it still does. It still does. That hasn't changed a bit. Mm. Um, um, was there any part of the book, Emilio, that you felt it had a rough time with, or it was, um, you're going to have to read this a few more times and think about it. Was there any rough parts of that book for you? Uh, as far as what they were saying uh, initially and, and how you reacted. I, I don't know if there's an answer for that, but I just want to ask. Uh, in a way. Yeah, uh, it's actually that same part, Nick, again, uh, in a way. What I mean by that, and I'm, I'm sorry to use uh, terminology uh, for your listeners that they may not be familiar with, but the, the word is thought adjuster and um I, at that point in my life, um, the idea, the concept of somebody or something adjusting my thoughts. No, <laughs> I thought the that's same not, thing. Yeah. That's the first thing I thought of, too. Yes. <laughs> uh, I had so, a problem with that phrase. When I first read that, I went, I had a moment like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I had an uh-oh yeah, moment, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that. yeah. Yeah. It was ego, pride. I'm not sure what it was. But, yeah, it just sort of really um, – Rubbed me wrong is, is is the only way I would kind of describe it, you know. Um, but really, as I progressed through the the book and and the experience, um, it became very clear um, why those words were chosen. Um, and actually, that name of thought adjuster, as you know, um, that same personality. This is what they're talking about is what is talked about in so many different religions but in many different ways, but very much the same concept. And that is this inner light, the inner light of God himself dwells within us, right? Um, And it's that inner light, that very personal fragment of God himself that he's bestowed in each one of us, uh, making us unique, uh, making us a, a, a truly dual personality between 
a a human being and 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 having a divine uh guiding loving partner um and um the book describes that um relationship that that that, that what that being is and um uh, has many different names as that relationship sort of changes over time but it's so loving because it's not it's not thought manipulating right it's thought adjusting it's taking your own thoughts and uplifting them tweaking them giving them the extra beautiful flavor of god and his loving presence whatever that might be right um that that's that's what that thought adjuster really is uh trying to describe and that type of that relationship at that point with that Mm-hmm. Well, well said. Absolutely true. Um, another thing it did for me is it expanded what I thought I knew about the universe, that it's much infinitely bigger and more complex than I ever possibly imagined or read about. It expanded my my feelings of what's out there. And also, at the same token, that every single being is important. Is important, even though you're a tiny little speck in this multi-universe of seven super-universes, and you're a little tiny part of a tiny little planet on the edge of the Milky Way, <laughs> and, and, and you think, oh, my God, I am so tiny. And then it says, you matter. You matter to, to the universal Father. You matter to God very much, and you are his, one of his sons or daughters. And, boy, that, that just absolutely just floored me. Uh, it still does. Oh, how true, Nick, you know, how true. Um, I mean, the fact, the fact, right, I say that, the fact that every single one of us, without exception, has unique value to God and to the cosmic adventure, to this whole, whole, vast, organized cosmos in which we are involved in. And you can take that and, and use that in your life to uh, understand your fellow man much more deeply and realize that we're all brothers and we're all sisters. And, and uh, once you really get that, then war and killing and hurting uh, uh, another being uh, takes on a, a deeper meaning. Uh, uh, it, it just does when you're going to the Rancher book and, You'll never feel the same way again. Um, of course, you knew it was wrong at the beginning, but this, this goes into a much deeper level of understanding of who we are and also the fact that we're not alone at all in the universe. In fact, the universe is teeming, teeming with other beings uh, on different levels and planes. And uh, that alone, uh, I'm still... Uh, in awe of the descriptions that the book gives. And what you were saying before about how layered it is and how beautifully written it is, and it, it expands your your whole concept of not only uh, God, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, the Michael son who came to this planet for us, but for all the other Michael sons and the other planets and the other beings in other places. It, it just it, It's just a cosmic triumph uh, of, of uh, writing and literature and um, I think that anybody who starts picking up this book and I use the term 
It's like potato chips. <laughs> and I think you can understand it very well, is that when you start reading a few pages of this book and you think, you know, I think I'm going to cancel what I was going to do because I wanted to settle in and read more of it. And there's so many people who have that same sort of story that once they started it, uh, they couldn't put it down. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, um, that and, was, and that's that's true. That really is true, and that's the mark of a good book, of course. Uh, and it's more than a book; it really is. More, it's a it's a blueprint for your life. It's your blueprint of your what they call your 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 universal career. When I heard when I read that universal career, and it talks about when you leave this planet, when you when you graduate from this planet, what what's next, and then what's after that, and after that. Uh, how did that strike you? Well, again, you know, I mean, it, it's not very foreign to me. I mean, growing up Catholic, right? I mean, um, we were taught by uh, God and, and Jesus and the teachings in the Bible. Clearly, if there are there are uh, life after death, right? Uh, yep. There are angels in various orders, right? I mean, uh, um, you know, Jesus talks about he has sheep not of this fold, right? He was not referring to just us here. He was referring to his other uh, beings that he also is, um, what do you call, I would say, in charge of, if you will, right? Um, and uh, so so it, it was not uh, really hard for me to uh, think about it in that way, you know, Um and it made a lot more sense that in the Bible, it's sort of like you die and you go to heaven if you believe in God and Jesus, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yep. then what? Then what? You know, you're just yeah. sort of hanging out in heaven and everything's perfect and dandy. And you go from this to that with no transition. You know, I, I, it just didn't make sense. And, and it seemed awfully boring, to be quite honest. You know, uh, well, yeah, you're, 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 you're right. Yeah. <laughs> boring, universal yeah. boring. That's not good. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It didn't sound very exciting. I mean, you know, it'd be nice to have some rest and, and have everything you need, you know, for a while. But, I mean, how many millions of years can that go on? And you'd be like, well, okay, you know, this is the same old channel, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it just didn't make sense. So yeah, and, and now you've got a blueprint that, that tells you very specifically and in incredible detail what to expect. I thought that was mm-hmm. a breathtaking uh, area of the book. Very wow, this has uh, yeah. been an awesome journey, and uh, Emilio, you're very engaging, and thank you very much for sharing. Um, oh, how can you. folks contact you? Yeah, uh, actually, you could use uh, Nick's email that he gave earlier in the show. Uh, okay. Nick, if you want to give that again, uh, but uh, he can sure. uh, then get in touch with me. That'd be great. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Anytime. And then I'd be passing it on to Emilio, and uh, you can reach me uh, at N I C K N Y N Y, the number one, in other words, the figure one, at gmail.com. Nick. NYNY1 at gmail.com. Um, Emilio, I want to personally thank you so much for being on my podcast uh, this evening. Um, it was a true pleasure. Uh, a very heartfelt thank you to you and for your sharing your thoughts uh, with us, uh, and, and certainly much love to you. Uh, I want to also say that uh, 
uh, I want to wish everyone here uh, and the people out there listening to the program, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Uh, and I hope you have an enlightened journey. Until next time, explore the limitless love of the Arantia book. Stay safe, be kind to one another, and let peace on earth prevail. Goodbye You're for awesome, now. awesome, Nick. <laughs> that, that was very well uh, and wonderfully said. Um, before we uh, wrap up and go to the musical break, I just want to let you know that uh, Phoenix invited you to be on his segment. So if, you, if you'd like to uh, rejoin us at 1020, uh, you're welcome to. That, that starts at 1020? Yes, sir. Okay, and the answer is yes, I'd be honored. I will tell him. Uh, and again, thanks to both of you. This was an awesome uh, segment. Thank you for sharing. And thanks to all who've been listening. We're going to go to brief musical interlude, uh, King of Dreams by Branks Dorian, and then we'll be back for the second segment of our show. Much love to all. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Do you see the back at his 
Welcome to Pride of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and I am honored to announce the launch of a new segment, Temenos, Ancient Mysteries. And our first guest will be Olab Phillips. Olab is the publisher of Mysterious Magazine. He's a media personality well-known within the Ancient Mysteries uh, community. Uh, He has a wonderful podcast, the Paranoia Podcast. Uh, and he's a fellow adventurer, and he's been investigating some really awesome uh, grail mysteries uh, for the past uh, couple of years. Uh, welcome. How are you, Olaf? I'm doing all right, Hercules. How are you? Okay, so much time has passed since we last uh, spoke. It, it seems like life just is zooming by uh, like an out-of-control uh, truck or boat or something. That's right. <laughs> so what it have is. you been up to? I'm sure you've been doing a lot. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I've been continuing to look into the the uh, Lemurian stuff a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've been uh, trying to understand uh, more about some of the occultish significance of various things. And I've been looking into the Anunnerbi on some of the weird things that they were doing and how it all fits together. Wow, that that is amazing. Um, I have been looking into the Lemurians uh, myself of late, um, and uh, uh, looking for like a Lemurian coding in popular culture. Uh, there's oh, wow. a lot of uh, um, material that exists in our comic books and movies and so forth that is uh, Lemurian, and uh, sure. every now and then they'll mention Lemuria, but they don't really go into uh, uh, the Lemurian influences. And uh, I've been like looking at that. 
And there does seem to be a, a whole uh, Lemurian aspect uh, to what's uh, going on. We seem to be finding ourselves in a weird reality externally. Uh, we're making all sorts of strides in terms of uh, um, understanding and accessing alternate realities, both spiritually and through electronics. So this is a really sure. interesting time to be here. It is. It is. I mean... You know, I, I, I see it too. I probably have not done as much with the symbolism as you have. Um, but what I've been trying to do is is to figure out on the Lemurian side, to, to figure out how how can we show that they were actually here. Okay. Right. Because you know, you, you look at <clears throat> you look at popular culture and you know, you have the shaver the shaver mysteries and all that. You yeah, the I am movement. In a lot of these groups that they claim to have knowledge, you know, of Lemuria and and of the survivors of Lemuria, but at the same time, how do you quantify that in such a way that I can I can tell you, okay, you know, they're real, right? So right. I've been trying to figure that part out. And Lemuria is kind of tricky because uh, other than the fact that there seem to be these like weird cultural influences in the Pacific. Uh, there right. doesn't seem to be any physical evidence for Lemuria, and the name Lemuria comes from a um, uh, like a guess at a landmass that would explain uh, the distribution of lemurs throughout that uh, uh, region. So that's where Lemuria yeah. comes from. It comes from lemurs, and uh, yeah. um, so uh, later on, uh, Churchward uh, brought forth the whole Mu uh, uh, legend. Uh, which looked at right. a bunch of interesting cultural uh, influences as well. But uh, right. um, culture can be diffused through boats. And uh, Thor Herdal showed very clearly, like with Kantiki, you know, how that can right. be accomplished. So uh, it, it's a rough one. It's it's a rough one. I, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to easily show that there was a continent of Lemuria in the center. And maybe uh-huh. there wasn't a con- continent of Lemuria in the center. But what we do see is... You know there there are some strange there are some strange elements to it. For example, you know when you look at megalithic architecture, right? That most of the um, pyramidal structures are uh-huh. located or were originally located along the Pacific Ocean, right? Hmm, that's interesting. And, yeah, and and so you know you have ones like Egypt, right? That's not on the Pacific, but you know, in Ethiopia and other in areas along the Pacific, you know, you have a culture that existed that basically built the same thing that the Egyptians built, but in miniature. So instead of having a massive pyramid like the Pyramid of Cheops, they had they would build a pyramid that's like 15, 20 feet high. But the obelisks and the symbolism, it's all the same. It's just small. But right. And, you know, you, you've got the Mesoamericans. You've got, you know, you've got uh, pyramids down in you know, out in Asia, it, you've got these pyramids scattered all over, but they seem to originate from the Pacific. And then there's the cultural stories. You know, I had a very yes. interesting com- conversation with a with a, a woman who's Yurok, and she we were talking about the Wage and the Wagash, who are very culturally significant to the um, Lemur or to the Yurok, and they kind of fit that like Lemurian mo. Right. Okay. You know, and so basically, the Wage. This this is actually kind of kind of interesting. The, the Wage, 
they descended off of Shasta, and supposedly Shasta was one of the strongholds of the survivors of Lemuria, right? So they descend off the mountain, and they come down amongst the Yurok, which is the Native American group up in Northern California. And they, they teach them how the Yurok already knew how to do certain things, but they taught them, you know, the power of stories, and they taught them how to hunt, how to fish, how to do this, how to do that. And then one day they said, you know what, we're going to go, we're going to leave you and we're going to go up north because we miss the rest of our people and the rest of our people are to the north. And they left one guy behind. They called him the deer friend because he could speak to deer and animals. And then eventually he got, yeah, he got tired of waiting. And so he went up north to go join the rest of them. So in, in by itself, that story alone doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, it does to the Yurok, obviously, but in the context of Lemuria, okay, that's a story. Well, the Yurok were so, it was so culturally significant to them that when they saw Europeans coming toward the coast, right, they called them Mm -hmm. the Wagesh because they believed that they were the ancestors of the Wagay who were coming back from the north. And they saw them on ships, and the ships were brown, and the, and the, um, the sails were white, and so they thought that the Wagesh, um, who I forget the exact translation. I think Wagay means like people of the clouds, and Wagesh okay. is the people of the of the the earth and clouds. And so they thought that the ships were actually earth that was moving across the water, being blown by clouds. And so oh, they wow. called them the Wagesh. Yeah, they called them the Wagesh. And so the Europeans come on shore, and then things went very badly. <laughs> but, you know, but they equated their first sighting of Europeans to the Wagay, who had come off of Shasta. And at the same time, you have stories of the Klamath and the Shumash and these other groups all up and down the coast and even inland, you know, about these mysterious people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've got the Easter Island thing. In fact, I was reading a, a book today, and they were talking about, the author was talking about how Thor Heyerdahl even, you mentioned Thor Heyerdahl. But how mm-hmm. Thor Heyerdahl, when he, when he did Contiki, part of that is that he went out to Easter Island, and he was like, where did these people come from? Oh, you awesome. So, now you've whetted you know, my appetite for this lore. <laughs> well, there's a lot to it. I mean, for example, the, the Yurok were in a war with the Klamath for a very long time. But the Klamath actually <clears> – <throat> So you're not, you know, if you're at war, right, you're not trading, like, stories. You're fighting. Well, the the Klamath, there's outside of Klamath Falls, there's a rectangular um, reservoir. And the Klamath believe that that reservoir was built in a single night by this mysterious group of people who had a city a little north of Klamath Falls. Is so, this you know, tie into your grail, uh, your grail journey? Because uh, there, too, you're investigating a body of water. Right. So the thing about that is that's about the Tatha, de Danan, right? And, and I have a belief that one of the things that, that we get, whether you know, you're looking at Atlantis and Lemuria or whatever, you've got a series of mysterious islands. And they're always islands, right? So you have mm-hmm. Atlantis, you have Lemuria, you have High Brazil, and you have Ultima Thule, right? Yes. So what what I believe is that these mysterious islands, I try to take it from the point of view of, okay, 
we you know there's enough legends about them there's got to be something to it right my thinking is is that there are four main islands there's Thule, high brazil atlantis and lemuria well there are four the top that had the spear the sword the cauldron and mm-hmm. the um, and the rock right right i think each i think each one of those objects that were part of the treasures i think each one of those equated to a separate island. And I think those islands were occupied by the Tatha. I think the Tatha are the Lemurians. That is uh, very interesting, very unique. That is an awesome avenue of exploration you embarked on. Yeah, and and one of the things that that got me thinking about it is that nobody, nobody really understands why I live outside of San Francisco, and, and one of our enduring mysteries, right, we have two. One, one is this bizarre wall that runs for like 50-some-odd miles, and it's actually not the only wall. It's, it's part of a, a complex of walls that are actually run from Fresno all the way to the Oregon border. Wow. And they're, they're around, yeah, they're around the Dales. They're around Shasta. They're around Diablo, where I live. They're around all these mountains are encircled by these walls. And in some of the larger mountains like Shasta or the Dales, you can see you can see a larger structures like a city, the bits and pieces that could have been a city surrounding it, the mountain. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about the Wagay, the Wagay, because they came off the mountain. So, you know, the people that lived at the base probably thought that these mountains are all very high. You know, the Wagay were probably up on the top of these mountains. But one are of the you, other mysteries uh-huh. Are you familiar with Andrew Collins, the writings of Andrew Collins? I am. He, he uh, hypothesized a, a mysterious uh, race uh, uh, and uh, found, like, all these scraps of uh, evidence for them. Uh, a lot of them are very tenuous, but cumulatively, sure. they were, it was pretty convincing, uh, his, uh, his argument. Uh, with, and he tied it with, like, the Samurg and angelology. You know, it, it was a really interesting uh, um, argument and uh, do these people that you're um, sharing information about do they fit into that category? Are they a lost race of uh, of humanity? I think so, and it, I think it's also what Graham Hancock was talking about in Fingerprints of the Gods. Okay, and some, you know where where he goes to Nan Madal, and it, you're looking at Nan Madal, which is a you know, it's a completely artificial construct that they, they literally built artificial islands. So one of the, one of the reasons why I, I think this is because, <clears throat> well, about the Tatha, so one of, the, one of the enduring mysteries of here, right, and, and I do think that it's a lost technologically advanced civilization. But I've one, come to that one conclusion, of the, too, that, that there were yeah. ancient technologically advanced civilizations. Oh yeah, but one one of the things that that I started to wonder is that nobody can ever truly explain <coughs> what Sir Francis Drake was doing here. Mm-hmm. There were there were no galleons to sink here, right? This this was on the fringe of of the Spanish conquest. Everything he was after was south of here. You know, they were all El Dorado and the cities of gold and all that stuff. That was all down in Mexico. In South America, you know, they were after the Incans and the Aztecs and taking all that gold. There's no treasure galleons up here, but he still came here, and there's no people to fight here. 
So he comes to the to north of San Francisco. He lands in, supposedly in a place called Drake's Cove, right? Drake's Beach, Drake's Cove. He mm-hmm. he, esta- he establishes a communication with the Native Americans, and supposedly he leaves behind a bunch of guys to establish a colony. Why? I think that he was here because remember you're talking about the era of John D and and all this, you know the the interest that D had in Atlantis and all this. I'm thinking that he came here to find the Tatha construct that they believed was in this area, but he was south. He should have gone up to Shasta, right? Okay. And he left those he left those guys behind to find it. But one of the interesting things is that if you look at if you look at where at least in the bay, right? Why I started to wonder why would he come here? Why would he think it's here? Right? Mm-hmm. And I started to I started to look around at the bay itself, the land masses of the bay. And it dawned on me that if you look at the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay itself, you have all the elements that the Tatha talk about. You have the rock, which is the the defining mountain in our area is Mount Diablo. That's the rock. You have the cauldron, which is the bay. The peninsula that San Francisco sits on, if you look at it, it looks like the hilt of a sword. If you go north where Drake supposedly landed, there's a, there's a landmass that juts out into the ocean that looks like a spear point. So you have wow. these elements. Yeah, you have these elements that construct the treasures of the Tatha. Now, if he came here because the treasures of the Tatha were here, you could see these land masses that represented it. Maybe the Tatha needed these symbolically these objects to exist wherever they went. Now I'm still trying to I, figure I out where the culture. I remember you shared some of this before, and uh, it, it yeah. was fascinating then. And today you're tying it all together, and uh, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, and and if you look, if you start to look at, at some of the Polynesian myths you know and and uh some of the other groups that are along the pacific you know you you see variations of wage that that they're the waga the wage the wagesh you know but that wag something the seems to represent some sort of mystical group of people that nobody can explain you also have these these constructs and you know i i'm not a huge fan of, of some of the labels of them but but you have some of these gods that existed that that don't look like the the natives of that area and on one hand you know going back to my training in anthropology on one hand uh-huh. you could argue well they they make them look the opposite you know you're maybe you know morphologically you're short and you're darker skin because you're near the equator you know your hair is darker you know maybe you project that a god of some kind would be taller than you and maybe instead of being dark would be light Maybe instead of having, you know, brown hair, they would have white hair, or yellow hair, or something else. But it's bizarre that these these constructs do exist throughout the Pacific region. That it's not just like in Mexico, the you know Quetzalcoatl connection. These actually exist in other places. Mm-hmm. And it's like you have to ask you have to ask yourself, okay, well if that if that exists, there has to be something to it. That had to come from somewhere. Somebody didn't wake up one morning and and say, okay, well I'm gonna you know, I'm going to project a God that looks like this thing, but it also makes you wonder that if, if you're dealing with a supposedly this cult 
tall, pale complexion guy with blonde hair, right? Where's that going to come from? Right. Most of the most of the earth does not have blonde hair. Blonde hair only comes from one, you know, I mean, it's, you see it in other places, but predominantly it comes from Scandinavia, right? Red hair, right. blonde hair. Uh-huh. It comes from Scandinavia. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, now we're talking about Ultima Thule. Well, if you mm-hmm. have a if you have a global civilization where these four main islands are your your center points, and maybe you have colonies, which would explain the pyramids. The pyramids could also be cargo cult kind of kind of behavior. But if you have colonies, you're you're moving around. So you could get a guy from Thule that would go to Lemuria and he'd live there for a while. Maybe one day he shows up at the colony in South America, in an in a you know, like a pre, pre-Aztec society sees them, says, oh, that guy has, you know, that guy has something mysterious. Because remember, you know, what you can't explain, you explain as witchcraft, right? So, right. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, they go, oh, he must be a god because he has a cell phone, you know. And so they project that. And then these, you know, these these legends start to appear all throughout the Pacific. Pacific. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of strands that tie it together. The, the problem is that they're tenuous because whatever happened, happened bad, and it happened fast, and it completely destroyed everything they had. But still, right. you're, you're gathering a lot of uh, evidence uh, that might be tenuous. But again, uh, if you put all that tenuous evidence together, uh, it starts uh, cohesing and starts reflecting. Uh, and you get yeah. to see something that was previously invisible. Um, and the Grail legend comes from uh, th- that area also, from uh, uh, northern Europe. And uh, hi- it would come from Hyperborea originally. Hyperborea. Um, and what would there be a difference in the cultural context for these uh, four treasures? Um, or do you think the meaning has been preserved uh, uh, through, like, the European branch of it? Well, the, you know, the European branch, and, and again, this is, you know, this ties to the Anunnaki <clears throat> that, they, mm-hmm. that they had dispatched out of Ron to go find it. But, you know, the, the conventional wisdom of <clears throat> the European vision of the grail is that this is a cup, you know, associated with the Last Supper and, and Jesus and Christianity. I, I think that, that the, the Tatha architect, arch, archetype for the Grail is more of what you would see in the Wiccan kind of, kind of situation where you know, it's more used as a, a sacred vessel of fluid, that it's not necessarily water or blood or anything in particular. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's very interesting that makes me really believe that these things existed right? You know, again, you find little hotspots. There are two big examples, and one ties into the grail and one doesn't. The one that ties into the grail is that when they were doing work in Tijuanaco, and I forget the name of the, the, the there's an archaeological site that's even older, across, literally across the street from Tijuanaco. Yes, yes. They, with the weird blocks. Yeah. I forget the right. name. They, yeah, but they, they, had, <clears throat> they had discovered that there was a family who was in possession of something called the Magna Bowl. Have you ever heard of the Magna Bowl? No, I have not. Okay, so let, let us set a, a picture for a moment. So Tijuanaco and this, this other site, um, they're, they're in what's called the Altiplano. 
it's a high altitude desert in Bolivia and it's very, very high. And it's, it's, uh, it's very barren that there's not a lot of stuff up there. In fact, it doesn't even rain that much. There, there are people who have even argued that it might be Atlantis because it's circular and, and whatever. <clears throat> well, they found this bowl. It's called the Magna Bowl. And the Magna Bowl had a, a statuette that was also with it. It was kind of a pair. The Magna Bowl itself is, and, the, and the base of the statue, and the statue is of a woman. They're completely covered in, in a cuneiform, which is uh, a specific wow. type of, of writing that dates back to the Sumerians. And the Sumerians were in Iraq. So you have this bowl covered in cuneiform, that, something that would be illegible to, to anybody who lived in South America, existing in South America. And there was a guy who actually translated what the cuneiform that was written around the bowl said. And basically, it was instructions on how to use it. And then the base of the of the statue was basically referring to the statue as Ishtar, and that the bull was actually a sacrificial bull for Ishtar. It was it was actually used to to collect a, a fluid. You know, we don't need to get into what it collected. You can Google that. But it it collected <laughs> a fluid that was that was used in the veneration of Ishtar. So okay. how did a bull how did a bull get from Iraq? in Samaria to Bolivia. Well, there was travel back and forth because also the, the pygmies in their legends talk about a, a period in their history where they were traveling around the globe and doing metal work. Uh, and there are legends throughout the globe of uh, uh, diminutive dark-skinned uh, smiths uh, in the in the mythologies, and also um, following things from a, a Greek mythological perspective, which is kind of where I live. Uh, there, somebody pointed out, I forget uh, his name, but uh, he wrote a book on uh, on this, and uh, he had pictures in the book that uh, Hercules uh, was transplanted to this uh, country because the Mohicas in the depictions of their leopard god. Um, uh-huh. They have one depiction where the leopard god is uh, holding two snakes, and then they have another depiction where the leopard god is fighting like a multi-headed, uh, you know, long-necked type of uh, creature. Uh, and these right. are right out of the Hercules mythology. And we know that the from Herodotus that the Phoenicians um, they honored Hercules above uh, all other gods, and they brought their god with them wherever they went. Right. And uh, the city of Thebes in Greece, not the Egyptian Thebes, um, their mythology was brought over from uh, Phoenicia because the uh, founder of Thebes was Cadmus. And Cadmus was a Phoenician from, from around Tyre. So right. yeah, if they honored Hercules and Athena there, then chances are that the Hercules and Athena of, of Tyre uh, were, you know, had a lot of uh, uh, Phoenician influence. So I know that the Phoenicians uh, uh, came to this uh, country in the continent uh, below uh, and the uh, countries above uh, because we found Phoenician artifacts. Sure. So th- th- there was contact. There's a depiction of tobacco in uh, some Egyptian uh, ruins that they dug up, and they wouldn't know about tobacco because that only you know grows in uh, um, it grew in one place, and, and cocoa. But what I well yeah, and they they found cocaine and in some yes. of the mummies. But what what I think that we're seeing right is that this whatever this extinct 
civilization was, had established the trade patterns, that they had established these routes. And, and the, my suspicion is, is that the Altiplano is really out of the way. It's not, you're not going there to get cocoa or cocaine or, right. you know, or this is really out of the way. So if there was a if there was veneration of Ishtar on this, the people came from from um, Iraq and Syria and Iran, they and and Saudi Arabia. They came here, mostly Iraq. They came here somehow to the Altiplano and they venerated Ishtar. So my my contention is is that although these things did exist, right? that on the side of it, you also had a more high-tech civilization that was moving around at the same time. And right. they have moved those people to the Altiplano for some reason. Wow. That's mind-boggling <laughs> to think about that. Well, um, because remember, the, the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians, people like the Phoenicians or the Vikings, ancient Filipinos, the Chinese, you know, they went uh-huh. out on export. They went out on exploration. But they had a tendency to actually kind of already know where they were going, right? You know, the Vikings. Yeah, the Vikings weren't insane when they went out and crossed the Atlantic to come to North America, right, by way of Iceland and Greenland. You know, when Eric the Red was doing this stuff, you know, he he had a rough idea of where where he wanted to end up. Yeah. And so that knowledge, yeah, that knowledge came from somewhere. And, and and when you're talking about veneration of Ishtar, that that was not something that was happening in the 1500s or the 1200s or the thousands. You know that that's more on par with, you know, with the ancient Egyptians, right? Right. And they found that uh, the the name god Ra. Uh, I remember uh, in many uh, Indian tribes, in one of the uh, secret names of uh, deity, and. Right. Uh, there, there, there's a lot. Like they found uh, um, Hamlet's Mill, I think was the book, the first to a great amount of attention to it. Uh, that the numbers in mythology are not meaningless. You know that uh, the numbers no. point to uh, longitude and latitude and all sorts of other mathematical navigation information. And uh, right. there were a couple of books, and uh, this I find fascinating, that because the myths are reflected in the uh, stars. Uh, some myths are definitely star charts. So you have this story. Oh yeah. That if you transplant it to the sky, it will take you to a specific uh, place. So uh, um, exactly. That that is amazing, and that shows premeditation um, and a very advanced understanding of our planet. Right. And and you know when we're talking about an advanced civilization that existed you know, pre-Egyptian or pre-Phoenician or pre-Roman or whatever, you know, we're not talking about someone where they necessarily are flying airplanes or, right. I mean, they could, they could, right, because we have the stories of the Mahabharata and the Vamanas, you know, in South America, they have those, the golden airplanes and, and you have the Nazca, the Nazca lines. In North America, you know, we have we have the serpents and the other things that can only be seen from the sky. England, obviously, they have the same. The, you know, there's, they probably had some of these capabilities, but at the same time, I don't think that the Wage who came off the mountain and talked to the Yurok, you know, maybe a few generations before the Europeans came, were necessarily the survivors of Lemuria. 
I think they were the survi- the descendants of the survivors of Lemuria. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so when you're talking about a bowl and a statuette that are used in the veneration of Ishtar, you know, the Sumerians, that goes back quite some time. So, yes, it does. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was one of their main law-providing law stories, right, you could argue that it was the basis of of the the story of Noah. And then, you know, Mithra, you know, is, is the, the Jesus figure, right? These all come out of the same kind of area at the same kind of time. So as well before any of that stuff. So, you know, to me, the question is, how do you get from Iraq to Bolivia to the top of a mountain on Bolivia? And I, I think they may have come along with a group mm-hmm. of these people, you know, whether it was pre or post destruction, some group of these guys were moving around and they were going there for some reason and brought these people along. But the other thing that I was going to point out is that, you know, more uh, later around the time of the Yurok, you know, meeting the Wage. So they were digging in, in Concord, California, which is not far from me, just to tell you how weird this gets with the whole Shasta Lemuria thing. They were digging the uh, railroad uh, station for Concord. And this is in like the turn of the century, 1908, 1910, something like that. And they dug up a skeleton that was like eight feet tall, right? Had all these grave goods. Yeah, Smithsonian comes out. Of course, they lose the skeleton. But, you know, there are photos in the newspaper and it's very well documented. Well, when they looked at the grave goods of this person who had been buried, right, they found objects from, from Asia, from China. They found objects from the Philippines. They found objects from the Klamath. On the, in Oregon, they found objects from the Yurok, and they found stuff that they couldn't even explain what it was. They found wow. stuff from, from all over the Pacific Ocean area, and then they found stuff from the northern end of where I think these, this kind of like proto-civilization existed. You know, they found stuff from the northern end of it with this guy, and he was, he was eight feet tall, very robust, big, big burly guy. And yeah, that's a universal legend, the giant people, the oversized people, right. and the smaller people. <clears throat> but, that's, wow. but that's the Wage. The Wage were supposedly seven or eight feet tall. You know, the, the Yurok say that they were not double, but they were significantly taller than they were. So, you know, you're looking at a seven or eight foot tall, and it's like, okay, you don't need to believe in the Wage. Oh, wait a minute. They dug up an eight foot tall skeleton and, you know, you know, maybe a couple hundred miles south, it really makes you start to wonder. That it does. Unfortunately, we're running out of time today, but I, I enjoyed this uh, very, very much. What I want to do, Damn because it. I want us to stay in touch, <laughs> is yes. every month when we have this segment, you get first uh, a shot at it. So I will All present that- it to you before I present it to anybody else. And if you can make it, it's yours. And if you can't make it, I'll, uh, I'll uh, schedule somebody else. But this way, at least... Uh, um, we won't turn around and it'll be like eight months later. <laughs> right. Hercules, you're, as always, you're too kind. And I, I really appreciate that. And I'd love to come on. You know, it also awesome. drives me. Because, you know, and I'm a human. So sometimes I get busy, but this this will keep me moving forward. I got to present something, damn it. <laughs> okay, awesome. And, I, and I'd love to see this finally in print in a big, thick book with lots of black and white pictures and a bunch of colors oh. as well. Because I can see that. I'm working this, on this, it. This, 
I, I've seen this evolve uh, over the course of a few shows uh, spread out over a couple of years, and it's really right. cohesing and, and becoming your, – your vision is very powerful. And thank you for your kind words. You're incredibly awesome, Olaf. And uh, I, the weeks will pass, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right. I'll talk to you soon, then. Before you go, how can folks tap into your world and access all the wonderful things you're doing? Uh, ParanoiaMagazine.com. Uh, Paranoia Mags on Instagram if you want to see my my adventures in baking, soon-to-be blacksmithing, <laughs> and, uh, awesome. and uh, coal archaeology. Yeah. I'm looking at my coal forge right now. <laughs> I got to fire it up. You have to send um, me a then, picture. I will. I will. I will. I'll make you something once I get well, good Well, that'd be extremely awesome. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> okay. Have a wonderful evening, and I'll talk to you soon. And to those who are with us, we're going to take a brief music break, listening to Merlin and I in honor of Olaf and the Grail, and then we will be back with Phoenix the Techno Druid. Tribes will 
fought to claim this land Many died for the folly of King Merlin am I Merlin am I And I know That was so so appropriate. Isn't isn't that an awesome song? <laughs> hey, oh man, that was so appropriate to tonight's topic. So uh, I will introduce you in your show. Uh, we're back. Uh, this is Pride of Olympus, and our next and final segment for tonight is hosted by Phoenix the Techno Druid, uh, who has a technical bomb he's going to drop on us a little later and we might also have a special guest so without further ado i will pass the scepter of olympus to you cool cool 
Okay, so tonight, I mean, last last show, everybody, yeah, everybody, for good reason, was worried about uh, what's called millimeter waves used in 5G. That's how they accomplished that nanosecond data transfer, right? You, 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 any given data packet, that whether it's whether it's just your car throwing out radio waves on the front of your on the front of your Tesla Model S. And that's how they make those hyper-accurate maps that they now decorate Google Earth with. And or, Nick is here, by the way. I just wanted to let you know. I just realized that you can't see my board, so you don't, you don't know that he's here. Hi, Nick. Uh, how are you doing? Nick, are you there? Phoenix, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Okay. The, we've been having yeah, board say, uh, Nick, Go ahead and call back. Okay, Nick, yes, if you can hear us, uh, call back, okay? Okay, onwards. Okay, so, now, one way to, and this is one thing I'm looking at for uh, a project that we're co-authoring, Herc, with the greenhouses. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem is they all have to communicate. Uh, now, I personally, now, keep in mind, any any radio wave, right, is going okay. to be able to magnetically displace something of the same diameter it hits, right? So you don't have to worry too much other than just magnetic field absorption from a ham radio, right? Even if they're pushing like 15,000 watts, which I believe is a theoretic, one of the FCC's theoretical broadcast limits. I've recently got my, my GMRS call sign. Um, I'll yes. make sure everybody has that at the end of the show. Awesome. And, and back, yeah. by the way. Hey, Nick. Hi, I'm here. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, I can hear you now. Oh, great. Okay, I don't know what happened, uh, but anyhow, glad to be with you guys. Same here. Sorry, Phoenix. Okay. Okay. So my interest, my interest in the field, especially with this, with these smaller waves, right? My interest in the field is obviously data, data transmission speed. Um, now, again. Broadcast limits. I mean, the same as the same as la, you know the same as last show. A proper broadcast limit adhered to. It's the bread and butter. Um, other broadcast limits, and I'd actually I'd sat back and did some homework earlier today. And the military actually has a system called the active denial system that uses like a fifteen thousand watt beam of twenty eight gigahertz. And I, I've known, I can say in my lifetime, I've known Navy SEALs that say, don't try to stand in that beam. You, you're not going to be a tough guy, you know? It don't work. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, and apparently apparently the feeling of the feeling that in this 28 gigahertz pulse, keep in mind, the little tiny microwave pulse coming out of your, you know, out of the front of your Tesla Model S for its spatial awareness, for the auto drive feature is 25 to 35. It receives back, you know, it, it, what a, your surroundings echo back, your close surroundings echo back waves that you can put together inside of computers and make hyper accurate maps. We're talking as accurate as the eye can see, if not slightly more so. And you're just—I mean, the sun's hitting us with the same frequencies, anyways. But you notice how much that's getting here, versus how much we would be putting there. You know. Right. Okay. So now the other half of the other half of this—I mean—was 
and still is to um, let let our listeners know of other services. Now, recently, I just paid the seventy bucks to the FCC and got my GMRF call sign, which G- General Mobile Radio Service. Uh, for you guys, it would be those uh, those radios, not the CBs, but the other like the, the like the mountain radios that people hook up to their Jeep in West Virginia while they're going up to whatever observation point or something, you know, up in the Appalachian, you know, up in Appalachia. So, and, and that's the primary use. Uh, there's limited commercial use of the general mobile radio service around, um, I've seen New York City. Uh, there's, but there's also several citizen-owned repeaters. One, uh, one, that you might find interesting, Nick, if you have access to a computer. I mean, nope. otherwise we just rewind the call. We 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 the show. If you have access to a computer, Nick, look or Hercules, either one of you or both of you, write it down or look it up. Aprs dot fi. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's going to pull up a Google map. That's probably if you allow it to see your location, which is a safe thing to do. It's Google. You know, um, it's no, well, yeah, I mean, it's Google. But, okay, so this is going to provide you guys with a list of not only weather repeaters in your areas, okay, this APRS.FI site gives weather information, and that's where your NOAA, that's where your NOAA frequencies that all the maritime users use. That's where they conglomerate all their information to say, oh, yeah, it's such and such degrees and the wind's blowing from such and such an angle at such and such a time. Because you guys, I know Hercules and Tenafly, you have at least three listening stations. And, Nick, um, I'm not sure where in the city to position you, so I've always positioned you right in the center of Central Park. Actually, and I'm on. Got, I'm on 80. Uh, just so you know, Phoenix, I'm on 85th Street and Third Avenue uh, in Yorkville, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Just so you know. Okay, uh, we need to talk sometime about um, about places to deploy uh, Hudson River cleanup. Um, okay. That's coming. That's coming. Okay, so APRS is Automated Packet Reporting Service. Right, and um, it is great for search for doing search and rescue, because the old man who fell down and had heat stroke out in the desert is now not moving on his walkie-talkie, but you can just sit there and like follow a GPS trail, breadcrumb trail to where he is, give him some water, and you just saved his life. Right, all because wow. of this automated packet report packet reporting service. It's also used. It also sees maritime usage. Okay, so the next data point for tonight is um, ADS, uh, I believe, uh, Aircraft Direction Service or something like that, which broadcasts around 1090 megahertz. Now, while we still have an infrastructure on the ground of ways to transmit um, this data to sites like FlightRadar24.com, and you might want to either look that down or write look that down or write that yeah <laughs> write that down or look that up um, flightradar24.com 
right? That is the result of 100,000 people just like you and I that stick a Raspberry Pi and an antenna out their window, and now they're receiving basic telemetry from airplanes. Okay, and it goes back through the internet. The data is collected, and now, now every flight, every radar control tower in the United States has a backup service in case their radar dish goes out. I, I'm a proud supporter of Flight Radar 24. I tell you, and you can get lightning readings. Uh, something Nikola Tesla would have loved to have is lightning readings of when and where, and you can actually pull the data to 3D model the stuff. Or, uh, or if with the enterprise level, because you got to have the, you got to have this. Um, there is on the Flight Radar 24 site. Um, our listeners can look. Uh, there's a I believe a tab called Ways to Contribute. Right, and it'll tell you how to build this Raspberry Pi device. Raspberry Pi is a now thirty-five to seventy-nine dollar computer with the with the Model Fours, and you just hook an antenna to you know you just hook a you basically either create an antenna or buy an antenna to hook to it. It's pretty easy either way, and now you're listening to a plane flying over your head. That's now broadcasting, okay, I'm on descent from coming down from 15,000 feet, turning into JFK. Uh, no, the, no, second guess, turning into LaGuardia. You know, and you're watching this happen in real time, but you're also streaming the information back to the control towers. Mm. Wonderful system. Very, very interesting. I've never, never knew any of this. Wow. Now, Phoenix, I got yeah, to say to you that when I was a kid, there was a program called Watch Mr. Wizard. Do you remember that program? Yes, I remember. I remember it. hearing about that Watch program. Watch Mr. Wizard, and it was about science, and I can't remember his name, but he was so wonderful, a teacher, teaching us things about science that we never, never knew, and he was terrific. And Phoenix, I got to say, you remind me, and this is a, a great compliment, a little bit about that program, because you are a teacher, and you're teaching us uh, in areas we had no idea existed. So just thank you. That is an honor yes, coming from you, Nick. Thank, thank you. Thank you from me as well. That was, that was very eloquently said, Nick. Wow. Yeah. And Okay. Oh, man. Oh, man. And we've got we've got so much good stuff coming ahead, too. So much good stuff coming ahead. Um, now for now, okay. So, just I, I, I guess just to, um, first off, I guess uh, did either of you two have a question to throw in, really quickly? No, I, I still have. To, again, I'm. Uh, it's a learning okay. curve. So uh, okay. I will okay. eventually understand a lot more than I'm understanding now, and I understand now a lot more than I understood before. with Hercules on this. I'm just learning a great deal, and uh, it's just all new to me. So I, I'm, I'm pacing this, but uh, I just appreciate this opportunity. Same here. Uh, as always, me too. Um Okay, so with with now with with your average citizen, you can people will sit there and do uh, like you uh, use for for the general mobile radio service. The program that most people use is called Zello, and it's an app you can download on your phone. Anytime you look up one of those chat rooms that is labeled GMRS, that means you need to have your call sign. That's a seventy dollar fee to the to the federal the FCC. Um, 
you know, and they had me, I had mine within a day. So that was cool. I can what now legally to to get that license. Uh, what do, do you need to take a test or? Um, no, not for general mobile radio service. Your, my, um, uh, my, my basic class, uh, radio, amateur radio operator's license, which is your, the first step. I believe it's like your basic and then you get your operators and then you can go and challenge your advanced or you can take the basic test and the, and the next one up and the next uh-huh. one up gives you vanity call signs and about like overall 15 bands of frequencies that you can broadcast on. Um, some of them being when they talk about an 80 millimeter, an 80 meter, when they talk about the 80 meter band, right? What they are talking about is a radio wave that from peak to crest back to peak, it, the, that distance is 80 meters. So here, uh, these lower frequencies, although you, you don't get stereo, you don't get a lot of things, but these lower frequencies don't disrupt molecular organisms I mean, you put a plant in front of a radio, uh, in front of a, even a 4G tower now, and that's only GSM level 4, hence 4G. Um, GSM is another beast altogether. That's the cell phone networks, and I could spin off five radio shows just on that subject alone, especially those freaky white towers that you guys are getting out in New York, supposedly, Nick. I mean, if you had a chance to walk them by a lot, yet, a lot of times, yeah, they're on so, a, a great many of the uh, buildings now, and all the uh, certainly all over Manhattan. I'm sure the uh, suburbs also. I'm, I'm certainly observing them more every day. What What's the deal? Do you think? Uh, I'm like afraid that five G is five G's got so many trillions of dollars behind it that that it's it's like a freight train that you can't stop and. Uh, we can go into this another time, but you, you know the dangers of this, of course, and it's just I can just see this just this growing and growing by leaps and bounds every single day. There's more towers. There's more places up on the roofs of all these buildings. I can tell you, I can tell you being one of the people who's looking for the licenses to not only, not only use the stuff correctly, like I said, half a, half a watt, can get you all around your house. There's something called a, uh, a it's called a Pi Star, right? And you can take these walkie-talkies that uh, it's called a Baofeng UV5R, right? And it's this UHF VHF walkie-talkie. You program it with these frequencies that now I can use, and now I can broadcast at a certain amount of watts. Um, the FCC, if you're a water two over, is not going to really come knocking on your door. I mean, if you're broadcasting a CB out of your truck at 15,000 watts going down the road, you're not a radio station. What are you doing? You know? Because you're going to drown how, how out everybody else. How far can you broadcast with that? Because um, I'm trying to fit it into uh, our expansion and our growth um, with such a, a, a get-up, because it was my understanding, because I played with CD broadcasting you know, many, 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 many moons ago, that uh, it was all very limited, the range uh, that you could reach. Uh, how would you reach, like, a larger ra- uh, uh, range? How would you reach, like, the world and beyond? You could, you know, I, those things are radio broadcast. 
you know. Um, well, actually, first I, th- I first I think our star I think our star brothers, uh, you know, at least some of them, uh, have, would have evolved telepathy. So I mean, okay. essentially, all you know, they could be sitting there just totally just basking in our peaceful thoughts. So, you know, this is maybe why they want us to get. I don't know. It, I mean, we could be a vacation spot when we're thinking right. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, we, Elysium would be a nice place for vacation, actually. You know, you know, and okay, so okay, so yeah, you can uh, now. I guess back to the carpet bombing of radio information. You can uh-huh. build these things called a pie star, right? And you take these radios, these walkie-talkies, which you can program. They have several bands. They're they're good for ham radio people. That is a that is a fifty question test out of two hundred no bank of four hundred possible questions. Um, I'm looking to go at least for my first two. That's why I've waited an extra couple of months before I go down to the city and county building and take the test. But and you are, used to have are to, there stations like ham radio stations or does that remain uh, an individual type of thing that uh, people do to communicate uh, and share information the the modern day operator I'm finding has uh, no matter what frequency you're operating on you the modern day operator is best friends with the ARRL the amateur american radio or, or no amateur radio relay league I believe mm-hmm. is what that stands for ARRL.org or just look for the ARRL, and I mean that's that's I mean that's where I found resources like Ham Study. That's uh, and one of the next beautiful things that we're going to get into in just a second here. Actually, no, I can jump into right now. Is you use these radios, your little handheld radios, through this thing called a Pi Star. You use a software called D-Link, right? You have to be a ham radio operator to use D-Link. But I can essentially, I can essentially dial in. Uh, like I could drop an, uh, next time I'm out there, Herc, I could drop or Nick, I could drop off a radio, like a little tiny transmitting station, and and one of these handheld radios, and I could dial into that transmitting station with my radio and my transmitting station and the internet, and it would be like we're in the same. You know, you would be getting reception like you're out in my driveway. Wow. So now to to answer your question, Hercules, um, as far as I know, a 30 watt, at least with the CB, now CB has something called atmospheric skip propagation, which means it bounces off the, in the right conditions, it bounces off the ionosphere and can do so. Your signal bounce then bounces off the ground and off the ionosphere, off the ground, off the ionosphere. Sometimes those, if you're lucky and get like a wormhole or something, you're picking up Australia. No kidding. I've actually oh, wow. heard of it happening. Um, you know, that's atmospheric skip propagation. Now, these the higher frequencies, the ones that I'm broadcasting in, 471 to 478, I believe, you know, um, I'm going to be looking at it and programming this radio before I key up, of course. But I can broadcast. Yeah, so these frequencies that I can broadcast now, those are in the 400 megahertz range. Four, like I said, 471 to 478, and there's like 42 channels or 52 channels, five, the last 10 of which are repeaters. 
which is another cool thing. Now, with something called Echolink, right, there's a software that just about everybody who's run in Hercules, I found at least two that are within walking distance of your house. Oh, wow. I guarantee you, you could walk there with it. You know, you could meet this radio operator. And, you know, it might actually be cool to send you out on a little radio mission, just considering I don't exactly have boots and tennis fly. I, um, I have been going on lots of quests recently, so it sounds like a fun quest to be on. So, now, it, also another thing with these Pi Stars, now all, of your, all of your emergency services, your police, your fire, are all going to be using a, a type of radio system called P25, which means your individual, like the Canafly PD versus the Crestdill PD versus the Hoboken PD, those are all three separate networks. And with this P25 system that they use, that also certain citizens, I mean, I'm not sure if you can get a P25 license, but I do know you can get uh, the ability to make a repeater on their frequencies that boost their signal. And I think in most municipalities, I'll pay you to do that. Just park uh-huh. on top of your house. Um, now, in Utah, with Utah Geography and CB Radio, you are looking at reliably, now for my 50 watts coming out of like a Midland GMRS radio, right, or any one of the other, any one of the other, the other 50 watt variants. That's, uh, that's those two the things are you're going to want to like look up. It's a 50 watt radio, a 50 watt stationary GMRS radio, which is uh, the limit of what you're supposed to broadcast. It will get you reliably in Utah about 45 miles out, clear enough to do data. You remember the old 1200 baud modems? Yes. You can do data and send pictures with um, a format. It's called C. It's like SSTV or something, or CC. I don't know. S, I believe it's SSTV, and you just send still still pictures using this radio this radio protocol, and you can send a still picture across it, and there you go. You know, uh, here's the New York skyline, or you know, here's here. Uh, Nick, I, I, last time I was out there, um, I was coming down. Um, I was coming down the the it's a marsh area you, that you get to right before you hit Jersey City because the place I was staying was in Jersey City the second time I went out there. Um, okay, so and I looked over and there was this perfect shot, this perfect. I want to get that picture. And it's just the Empire State Building with half covered, you know, half covered by fog, but you can clearly see it. And I'm wow. thinking, dude, next time I come out here, I'm coming out here with one of those Canon Rebel EOS cameras or something, man. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, that was a that's a million dollar shot right there. You know, there's a place uh, I passed it, and I, maybe you would know this. I don't know the exact. Uh, uh, it's it's a station in the in the in the marshlands there. Uh, just where you were describing, and there's some very large antennas right there. I think there's three of them. Do you know anything about that very isolated station? Um, I could find uh, throw me in, in like in like Facebook chat or, um, yeah, we could get Discord going. I mean, if you need more secure than Facebook chat, we could get Discord going. And yeah, throw me the coordinates. I'd be happy to look it up. 
Okay, I'll try um, to find I that. I think it's, I know what so you're talking weird. about. It's, it's such an isolated place in the middle of the marshy lands there, and you can see a little tiny road going out to this station in the middle of literally nowhere, nowhere. And then there's three large antennas. It's just a wild little place. Just, just wanted to let you know. Okay, so to figure out, now to figure out what the antennas are broadcasting, like a CB antenna. Okay, so also I threw in the uh, yeah I threw in the my GMRS radios will have about a thirty-five to forty-five mile range in Utah conditions. I haven't had a chance to see how they work in uh, East Coast conditions yet. Mm-hmm. Um, now radio station out there, those are typically uh, out in the marshland. I would almost I would almost to see if it's transmitting. I would like take a frequency counter out there hold it up in the air and hit the button to see what frequency is being broadcast. And usually stuff like that will show up as a weather station. Also this APRS.FI, um, most modern weather stations in case they need to be serviced are, they use APRS. So you know where they are and they're not pulling correct readings. So, you know, 100, one saying it's 666 degrees outside. No, and then that, that that guy got hacked. Sorry, um, you know it's like it's like trying to hack in the plane that said uh, Yo Mama, and it said you know so the the autopilots of other planes. This is why we have a distributed grid. Um, I would I would definitely like to look that up. Though. Well, I have wow, a question. As you're talking about this, I'm wondering: is there any nefarious is, is there any <coughs> way that somebody a bad guy could take this information and these instruments and do something really bad with it is there a way uh, i'm just asking the question it just comes to mind is there a way to i don't know uh usurp the um uh, the, 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 the what's being broadcast and do something else with it in a distributed grid system, um, here's the same here's the same reason that uh, the blockchain is used to uh, to make those uh, currency transaction. You know, like your one transaction gets only one number in all space and time. Ah. Um, you can make a distributed grid. So instead of a thousand computers uh, being the ones that are Make it, that are solving a math problem, you make it so in your distributed grid of computers, a thousand computers are sitting there sending you, in the case of APRS, sending you back the data packets, and so your computer can put it together and you can become a net point, which means people can send SMS over current hardware. Like you'll, you can get an SMS from a call sign. Let me find out if I have to. And actually, I do believe I have to have my ham license to do to use that service. Same thing. You can send little 64-character emails, guys, over the radio, over a walkie-talkie hooked to a laptop, and it will work. And it'll come in on somebody's email anywhere in the anywhere in the current system. Hmm. So yeah, Inter- yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Not a problem. Not a problem. Okay, so you guys ready for a bombshell? Uh, what are we looking at as far as time goes, Eric? In terms of time, we have five minutes, maybe six the most. Okay, 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 perfect time. Um, also, okay, so for the for now, 
I'm, pr- I'm going to try to have Shepard on with more details about what I'm about to drop um, next next show. So yeah, we you know we chronicle the rise of Prometheus. Um, now what we're looking okay, so right now I'm I'm not at liberty to say what kind of pulse generator. I mean, I'm going to leave that broadly open and wide. Too many details. I mean, you know, our guys, our guys, our guys are trying to get an event together that is set to run in conjunction to an international solar convention in Salt Lake the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of this month, right? So in conjunction to the, you know, solar panels are good and all, but that's not all this. That's not the only toy, toys on the toy box. Far from it. So, um, yeah, I'm not at liberty to say what kind of pulse. I am at liberty to say, um, yeah, in the madness the future revealed, <laughs> we solve the power problems of the Earth with sets of spinning magnetic fields. Merlin am I. Very awesome and very active. Uh, yeah, as soon as you can share information, uh, uh, both Nick and I disseminate information far and wide so we can help you spread the information. Uh, what I need, uh, okay, so what, if you guys are, if, yeah, if you guys are willing to put the word out there really quickly, and, you know, and as far as you can get it out there, what I need, and people can call me at 801-860-5883 in Utah, and I'm the I am the first stage of collecting information. Serious inquiries only, but what I need are are building people with buildings to hook it up to that have fifty kilowatts or greater power needs. Which so you guys send me the information that, in a PM and uh, and send it to Nick. This because I I know uh, I'm not going to remember I'll, I'll remember the gist of things, but I'm not going to remember any details. So if you send me the information, I will most definitely. Uh, spread the news around. And so will I, Phoenix. Just give us a title and a paragraph about what exactly you're looking for and needs, and then uh, give us, a, a, again, okay. the ways to get a hold of you. That's what I need. And a picture okay. or two if you have them, because uh, pictures are always, uh, you yeah. know, they draw attention and people become curious, and sometimes they click on, the, you know, to find more information. Or a diagram, something, a graphic even. Right, yeah. right. Um, I will supply all of those things and many more as soon as I'm able. Um, yes, yeah, like I was saying, right now they're looking at people that want to take a look at this. So if anybody, you guys know anybody that's willing to, you know, that's, you know, willing to find a way to Salt Lake basically is what it is on the, uh, at any point in those three days. Um, solar convention is good, is a good thing to attend. You know, um, I would make the trip in reverse for all the networking you get to be able to do there. But, yeah. Um, Phoenix, is that event going to be streamed by any chance? I, I am trying to figure out how to get at least some data out. I've got to talk with all the people included, including the vendors. Now, um, I said our job is Sunslingers was to make sure that people were adequately protected and fairly compensated for whatever technology we helped them bring to market. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we try to be the good, beyond the good guys, you know? 
And yeah, security. We're working on putting the event together. Uh, we're looking at at least seventy-five percent that we will be able to at, hold this event on like the on like the banquet floor at our finance company, and be able to demonstrate the tech. It's a three by three cube area that will throw out fifty kilowatts. It now, sounds amazing, um, and uh, I, I'm honored to be a part of it in, the, in you know whatever small way that I can. Um, before we wrap up, we have a few more minutes left. Uh, we will start with Nick, who is a guest. Nick, how can people contact you and enter your world? I would welcome any uh, emails like that, and you can do that by going to n i c k n y n y the figure one at gmail dot com. Thank you very much, sir. And Phoenix, um, what are all the different ways that people can contact you? What's the best way? And uh, uh, then we'll see how many more minutes we have. Okay, so the best way is probably either going to be uh, facebook.com forward slash ROR Perceptor Project. That's going to pull up the that's going to pull up the UFO. That'll pull up the Perceptor page. Send a message um, or book now. But yeah, you know, use the booking system. Uh, it'll send me a message either way, and I'll know. Okay, the X Y Z person wants an hour to talk, um, or use my cell phone eight zero one eight six zero five eight eight three. Keep in mind, keep in mind, we bring the real, we bring the future. So uh, if you if you you know if your business has more than fifty kilowatts of power needs, I can save you a ton of money. Call me. Um, and there, uh, yeah. there we go. And the call to adventure for those who uh, wish to go in that direction. It sounds very exciting, and the future is here. So thank you to both of you, fellow Argonauts and uh, uh, leaders of really innovative and needed initiatives. Uh, until next time, this is Hercules Invictus and Nick Curto and Phoenix the Technodruid. Wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. And Love thanks for all. tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 7-2. Over and out. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember... All manifestations of the divine are equally valid.